Welcome, everybody. Um, we have a number of people joining us uh, remotely. I'm not quite sure how many, but welcome to you too as well. Uh, this is um, a, an event being offered as part of Open Education Week, and some of you may have been to uh, or participate in other activities there because there are quite a lot uh, happening online as well as uh, physical events. Um, we had a very interesting program uh, this morning uh, on the theme of um, open educa- uh, sustaining open educational resources, uh, which is something that uh, gets talked about increasingly, particularly as uh, money for funded projects uh, dries up. Um, we're doing something a bit experimental this, this afternoon. Uh, we've got uh, an activity where we're working in, in groups, and the idea is to uh, encourage people who are joining us remotely to also join in this, this group work uh, by um, editing a Google document live uh, in, in the group. So everybody simultaneously is adding. It's something that's meant to work with Google Docs, um, uh, hopefully it, it will uh, without too many funnies. Um, so we'll be trying to you know, share the ideas and the discussion between those who are here uh, physically and those who are joining remotely, but keeping it relatively simple. Um, it would be good if we just start off by uh, saying uh, who, who we are. Um, my name's Jonathan Darby. I'm director of the Support Centre for Open Resources and Education here at the, the OU. Um, my background's mainly in, in e-learning. That's been uh, my uh, main interest. And uh, I love being involved in open education resources because it's the first case uh, in my <laughs> experience where there's been a major innovation um, in, uh, in, in, in practice, if you like, uh, around um, learning and teaching uh, strategy that hasn't been uh, predicated by technological development. And so while OER has sort of links to uh, e-learning, it's not really uh, an intrinsic uh, part of, of e-learning. Um, so that, that's, that's me, and I'll be uh, with you uh, today um, uh, trying to uh, keep, keep order where, it, where necessary. Of course. Uh, <clears throat> good morning. My name is Simon Thompson from Leeds Metropolitan University. I'll be speaking, I think I'm the second speaker, talking about the work that we've done at Leeds Met to sustain our initial OER work. Hi, I'm Lewis Dean. I'm a um, higher education officer at the Physiological Society. Um, we've just relaunched our website and are looking at how we are going to continue or, or otherwise with our OER Thanks. Um, hi, I'm Gabby Wittas, and I'm at the University of Leicester. I'm a SCORE fellow, and my SCORE project is looking at the Open Educational Resources University, or the OERU. Hello, I'm uh, Joanna Wild, University of Oxford, and also SCORE fellow, and my SCORE project is about um, how different institutions, higher education institutions, are trying to uh, promote open educational resources among the academics. Hello, I'm David Akambi from Nigeria. I'm the director of the, the OE Learning at the Bangkok University in Nigeria. 
And I'm coming here, I'm visiting on just a week to find out about the OU systems and how I can learn and carry there and see what we can do to also partner with the OU on as many aspects as possible that can help us grow. And I was in the, I had my education in the U.S. before leaving for Nigeria, and I taught in Nigerian University, which is an older university for 30 years before transferring to the faith-based university, which is the Bangkok University. So I just introduced them to e-learning, and I have the boarding to actually actualize what e-learning is. And it is my hope that with this experience, I'll be able to learn a lot to carry on. Thank you. Hi, I'm Tim Seal. I am the Assistant Director of SCORE, so I'm working to support OER in, uh, in HE across, the, uh, across England. My name's Alan Parsons. I work at the University of Westminster. And we're at the beginning, really, of how to um, incorporate OER into um, teaching practice. I mean, I'm based in the library surface, so I'm working across how do you, once all of these are created, how do you continue to make them available, current, qualitatively valuable? So that's, that's where I'm coming from. Hi, I'm John Rose Adams. I work here at the Open University I'm in um, what's called the Centre for Inclusion and Curriculum, which has the institutional um, lead for its widening participation curriculum. Um, so we're very interested in um, using open educational resources to widen participation. Hello, I'm Colleen McKenna, and um, with my colleague Jane, um, we're co-managing a project an OER project based at UCL called Sustainable Texts, which is looking at academics' narratives about learning and teaching. Um, and we're also collaborating with colleagues at the University of Bath on a project, OER project about disciplinary thinking. Right, um, well, Colleen's done most of it. My name's Jane Hughes. I'm Colleen's colleague working on the same project, particularly interested in sustainability because our project is in <coughs> um, the embedding strand of uh, UK OER phase three. Hi, I'm Janet Dyson. I'm the uh, school project assistant and I'm here to follow the Twitter feed and to check the email for any questions. Uh, good morning, I'm Megan Quentin-Baxter and I get the first keynote uh, speaking slot so I'll say more about me in a minute. Thank you very much. And uh, while the people uh, following remotely, uh, we... we not going around asking you to introduce yourselves, but do please remember that you can communicate with us at any time. Um, ask a question uh, via email or by tweeting, um, and uh, we will interrupt just as if you're in the room. So if, you've, uh, if you tweet saying something, we will put a hand up and uh, ask the speaker, pass on your uh, comment or question to the speaker. And you should have the... Uh, information on the email address and the uh, Twitter hashtag, which is uh, hash S-U-S-O-E-R. Um, and the email is sustaining-oer at open.ac.uk. Um, one of the things that has struck me from observation as being really important 
an important factor in the viability and sustainability of OER is community. Um, and, of course, one set of communities are uh, those built around uh, disciplines. Uh, so uh, it's um, highly appropriate that our first speaker is, is uh, sharing the experience of uh, one such community, uh, namely the, the medical education community. So without more ado, over to Megan. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you, Jonathan, and thank you to everyone who's um, provided this opportunity. It's an absolute pleasure to be speaking as part of OER Week and also um, to participate in some of the activities that are taking place uh, that others are broadcasting. Uh, I've been um, trying to keep up, but not particularly well. I'm the director of the Subject Centre for Medicine, Dentistry and Veterinary Medicine, but only until the end of March when our contract with the Higher Education Academy will come to an end as part of the transition arrangements. Um, however, Newcastle University is retaining employment of myself and our staff um, under the heading of MedEv uh, with the School of Medical Sciences Education Development. So um, I'm happy to say that we're uh, not all being um, turfed out of our jobs. Uh, it's also a pleasure to be a... Uh, Jonathan, could you switch the screen over? It's also a pleasure to be a SCORE fellow... Uh, this, is, this came as a massive surprise. Uh, even though I put the application in, I, I really didn't think that I would be SCORE material, and so I'm very grateful to the Open University and to, uh, and to SCORE for this opportunity. I've included in the slides a copy of the abstract, but you've actually seen this, and so I'm not going to give you a chance to read it now. Um, it's only for the benefit of uh, SlideShare when uh, I upload these. I was, I was going to do it just before we started, but I just missed the opportunity. So in terms of the presentation, I'm actually going to talk a little bit about um, the community, as, as Jonathan has mentioned. It's actually a pretty big community. Um, one of the key features of it is a work-based learning environment. It's learning in practice. So students are very much a, um, agents of change, both in academia, but also when they go into practice, they're then part of the healthcare provision or part of a, a learning framework with uh, clinicians and others working in um, a healthcare context. Um, one of the things or features about this is that there are a lot of staff who teach a lot of students. It's incredibly complex. So if you imagine that there is one student or two students placed with a GP's practice for um, some weeks, then uh, that GP, if they're teaching that student certain things, if they're doing any preparation, that preparation is being done over and over again for hundreds of students for um, all of the courses that operate in the UK. Um, you know the issues better than I do. The issues are to do with copyright, consent. Um, I do want to talk about risk management. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about consent as well because I think that is something that is very particular to the healthcare context. Um, and I also want to dwell a little bit on embedding high-quality third-party materials in open education resources. Uh, and so there's several slides on that. Okay, so 20% of all higher education students in the UK are supposedly uh, in some kind of health or social work program. Um, the, the, this was part of a study done that, by the Higher Education Academy based on Jack's codes, and that took place in 2009. The picture will be slightly different, but it, it's probably broadly the same. Um, let's say, for example, in dentistry, the <laughs> in dentistry, the... the one-to-one uh, -one teaching play takes place because, of course, you're working in a very small area uh, with students who, uh, with students who are um, necessarily being supervised very closely because these are students who are working on real humans. 
Yes, I think there's some complaints coming in, Jonathan. <laughs> That's okay, I can take longer. I, I'll just ad lib, don't worry. Um, so, one of the outcomes of this is that clinical staff are expected to be able to teach as well as to do practice, as to perform in practice. So, there are many programs that operate who teach uh, medical or dental or healthcare, uh, nursing, midwifery, podiatry, speech therapy. Uh, staff how to teach and, and these are similar to the PG CERT academic practice or PG CERT programs that operate in higher education in an academic context but they're usually delivered by universities but for people who teach uh, in clinical practice so this is a very detailed slide I apologise uh, well I, I can see it but you can't um, <laughs> so I'm going to hold out on you this is a, a, a slide um, that is a little long to read, but it's a description of the four open education resources projects that we've been involved in in MEDEV. Uh, the first one in phase one, uh, opening, uh, uh, organising open educational resources. Uh, we used to have the acronym of UERMISS, um, but we had to drop the misses because I couldn't think what the, uh, what the unpicking of that acronym would be. Um, it involved over half of the medical, dental and veterinary schools in the UK. And what we were looking to do is to harness examples of practice to find out what people did in order to start to look and putting into place some recommendations, some simple things. And I'm sure Simon's going to tell us exactly how to do this later. And um, some simple things that, that institutions or individuals could do in order to... Um... <laughs> no? <laughs> Sorry, Jonathan. Um, in order to... Uh, uh, help, help solve their own problems in, in terms of both using open education resources that were made available elsewhere, but also potentially contributing. We had an active, uh, an OMAC project, which was part of the series of projects look, working with people running the PG CERT clinical education, PG CERT um, academic practice programs and we had five medical schools involved in that in the UK um, so the, the program leaders there were training the trainers they were the people who were training the people who would teach the students so they were the training the clinicians who would teach the students Porsche was a collaboration with the London Deanery which is a very powerful organisation based within the confines of UCL in, in London they manage clinical training particularly in foundation years one and two um, in the London area and it's a pretty big pretty big outfit. Um, they also managed the e-learning, uh, NHS e-learning repository, which is a, uh, a national e-learning provision within the NHS. Now, some of you will know, hands up, um, if the NHS staff can have access to Durham, yes? Yes, sort of. Um, do academic staff get access to the NHS e-learning repository? No. No, very good. So it doesn't go the other way. But also, NHS staff can't contribute to Durham. They can download from Durham, but they can't contribute because the NHS is not part of the UK um, Federation. There's only one trust that's part of the Federation, meaning that they don't have a login, an automatic login to Durham. So what the, this project was doing was looking at back-ending output from legitimate output that we could share from between the NHS, the learning repository, and Durham um, in both directions. Um, Publish OER I'm going to talk about a bit more in, in a minute and of course there were some other projects that were working in the UK uh, such as Forest and HALS OER HALS is OER as a current project in phase three okay so what do teachers do um, teachers make a mess here's a classic mess um, just to describe the context this is a 
uh, an image that's been downloaded illegally from the internet um, from something known as uh, Grey's Anatomy. Um, it's been put into a PowerPoint along with 40 of its friends. And um, so in a series of 40 images, and you can see the member of staff has labelled everything and drawn all over it. And unfortunately, um, he did actually put this um, disclaimer on it saying that it, whose copyright it was, which I thought was good in the, in the circumstances. But then this was recorded, it was video recorded, and it was made available as a, as a file that somebody could download and take a copy of, or stream across the internet. And of course, even if you're streaming, you can still screen capture those, and, and so therefore these images... Now, I feel perfectly confident in putting this on the internet, even though, um, in theory, that would actually debar me from being able to share this on SlideShare, because Elsevier is one of the partners in our later project. So the problem that our mem member of staff had at this time, I mean, I, I bravely said, don't worry, I shall clear copyright for this PowerPoint for you. And, and then I counted how many images were in this, and I thought, there's no chance Elsevier is going to agree. So where does that leave the um, this kind of recommendations that UWA came up with? This is our phase one project. Um, we recommended that authors should hallmark all content, certainly for copyright, Put your copyright statement on it. Even if you don't want to put consent, sorry, Creative Commons or any other license, put the copyright statement on it. And here's a, an easy um, handout, the sort of thing that I'm sure you have already. It's in very small font, and I haven't bought enough copies, but um, if people would like to hand that round, um, just an example of some of the instructions that we like to advise stuff. And these are, this is a long version of the same thing, so I'll send that the other way. Broadly covers the same stuff, but one of them does it in many more pages. Okay, so put copyright on it. Um, Realise that performance rights are separate. Consent everything. Performance, copy, and um, consent uh, needs to be separated out and to be stored. Uh, <laughs> review institutional policies against good practice, and Newcastle's doing this at the moment. Um, and also, to, we need to have this discussion with publishers. So this is what we were recommended. I'm happy to say I think we're getting part, we're partly towards being able to do this. So for medical, dental and veterinary schools in the UK, we worked very hard with them to come up with some things that they could do, which is essentially the, the stuff that I've handed around. In order to safeguard yourself against litigation, have a policy, publish your policy review it, keep it up to date, train staff in what the policy is, and follow the policy. It seems simple, but actually it's quite hard. Um, I would strongly recommend using a disclaimer. And also, take out, uh, if necessary, take out insurance. Now, if you've got good practice, your insurance liability is likely to be quite small um, because you're managing your risks actively and you're trying not to get sued by anybody for copyright or consent issues. The, if you don't want to go to the trouble and expense of having good poli quality policies, what you can do is take out more insurance and then the insurer will pay the liability if you do get in, um, sued. Uh, but it is a high-risk strategy. So we developed the risk kit. You can find all sorts of advice processes available such as Casper, um, web to rights um, the Strategic Content Alliance has um, some really good advice and, and so forth. This is really just packaged in order to make it attractive to healthcare workers um, and it, it gives you an opportunity to test your material against a number of questions um, such as uh, are all of the elements in this resource already licensed? So 
a little explanation of ownership versus licensing, a little bit about third party, and then a choice between, yes, my material is all um, safely licensed, or no, it's not, show me more information, I need to think about this for longer. And it records every step of that, so that ultimately you get a trail of all the decisions that you've taken through the risk kit, and you can store that with the upload to Durham, and this system will automatically and possibly even bulk upload to Durham, um, unlike Durham's own interface, I think, but... Uh, James has written a, a bulk uploader for it. Um, you can also view the information that you've stored in a slightly different way. Uh, so it has a copyright section. Um, it has a, a, a pulls the plug and says, do not proceed. You mustn't um, proceed with this material. It's too dangerous. It's too risky. Um, and also sections on consent, such as for people, just ordinary people like today, all of us appearing in this video. One of the issues that's come up is that the people may, or sometimes people pass away, and this happens more often in healthcare than it does in um, ordinary circumstances. But we've certainly, as a subject centre, had a member of staff pass away, and the family contacted us and said, "Would you take down everything that refers to them on your, from your website?" Okay, and. There's an interesting question to be answered there. But we don't have a lot of people who've died who have a lot of video material out there at the moment who, for whom you know, it's questionable whether the family would be able to make that request or not. Um, but as risk-averse institutions, HE would normally comply with the family request to take something down. But it is, um, it is a grey area. So let's just talk about consent it is defined by the eight principles of the Data Protection Act. One of the things about principles is that the interpretation of them changes with time. Copyright does not change with time. And this is one of the reasons the Hargreaves report has been commissioned and endorsed by the English government. Because copyright is, um, at the moment, perceived as being not fit for purpose. Whereas um, data protection... Uh, the principles, the, if it's not fit for purpose, people just change the interpretation of the principles. We actually have to operate at the highest possible standard in order to consent people. And there are several rules that we know. People cannot consent for something they cannot conceive. So if they don't understand it, the consent is invalid. Um, and also, people should be allowed to withdraw their consent. And that's a really interesting question. How do you withdraw something that's been posted on the internet? Permanently we withdraw it. So, Effect. It affects teachers, obviously, students, obviously. Added product placement. You see people blur things out on Coke bottles and uh, so forth on the television. Obviously, when you're videoing in a situation like this, there are products that are around that you may or may not want to have the logos displayed from. Um, and actually, this is an area that education is increasingly having to look at. One of the key areas in health is because we use a lot of mannequins and we do a lot of demonstrations on mannequins and uh, um, phantom mouths and so forth. And uh, if they are videoed, then obviously that's product placement and it's questionable. Okay, so here's a nice lady who runs the research lab at the Transportation Security Administration in the US um, who... Uh, I'm quite happy to run the risk of the possibility of her suing me for putting this in my PowerPoint slide because it's, it's pretty much everywhere on the internet. I think she's uh, consented. But there's nothing there that shows me she's consented. So I don't have the equivalent of a Creative Commons hallmark to show me what the consent status of this picture is. Okay, so we've been speaking with the GISC about the possibility of creating a consent commons, um, something that will give us a little hallmark that shows us what the consent status is of pictures or 
recordings of any kind. It could be a story, it could be a, a voice recording and so forth. So the risk kit deals with consent for people and also deals with consent in relation to vulnerable adults, um, patients and children, um, some key groups that need extra care. Um, if you're interested in the health side, this uh, guidance was published by the Making and Using Clinical Re and Healthcare Recordings for Learning and Teaching group. It was the task force for clinical recordings in the UK, and they reported in December. Uh, and this website is excellent. Again, it gives you a number of decisions that you can um, make going through it and ask questions and think, you know, once you've gone through these tools a few times, you know what sort of things that they're, they're recommending you do and don't do. But, it, of course, all of these contain sample documents. So if you think, well, I need to get somebody to sign something, I wonder what that would look like. Of course, you have to tailor them for your own situation. So for, for publishing, this is one of my favorite subjects at the moment. Uh, I, don't, I don't really want to go to the publishers, but publishing in this country and in the, internationally is changing dramatically as we speak. When the REF... 2014 threshold has passed, I think it's very likely that academic journal publishing will switch to an open model, a primarily open model. And this is partly the backlash that um, our partners in um, Publish OER, Elsevier, have suffered because of their support for various um, anti-piracy acts that the US and others have been considering bringing in. This is the, the purpose of Publish OER, um, just summarised a little bit from the original proposal. What we wanted to do was look at business models that allowed the publishers to have some sort of income at the same time as giving access to high-quality published content as a, part of the, um, as a part of online educational resources because we want students to be taught with the best quality resource and, and a relationship with publishers actually delivers that presently. It may not into the future. I don't know. Jonathan may have some views about that. But uh, so, um, so we wanted to find new ways and new business models. This is an example of some content from Student Consult, which is Grey's Anatomy. Uh, Elsevier, note that they say, need all the images from this book? Download the lot. Bless them. Um, you can download them. You can look at them. Um, but you're not really meant to post them on the internet. Uh, but of course, uh, Elsevier realises they're fighting a losing battle because it doesn't matter if they're available digitally somebody will copy them and make them available so let's say for example we were with Elsevier in January this year and the new version of uh, Kumar and Clark which was being printed in India was already available for download even though it wasn't due for release until July was already available for download um, somewhere on the internet and of course they went after them for breach of copyright so you, so this material is available, but we're not actually accessing it dynamically from our learning environments yet. How do we bring this into OER? Um, you know, I would urge you to include stuff like this, but mark it, as I've done here. You may not be able to see this. Copyright 2010 Elsevier Student Consult, all rights reserved. So although this PowerPoint is Creative Commons, the um, material that's come from Elsevier I've marked as all rights reserved plus put the URL in it. So somebody else can go and um, request permission or, or otherwise um, ask uh, Elsevier's permission to use that. So if you do buy the book and get the codes to go into the student consult site, there's lots of lovely stuff, that, that videos and various other things that you can access. And of course, um, teachers are... I don't know if this will work. I'll give it a go. Um, teachers are always keen to... 
Yes, it's logged out. I apologise. I'll go back to PowerPoint. Um, that would have been a, an animated video of the uh, of a resource. One thing we're exploring with Elsevier is a penny payment for an iframe include statement. So you've included something in your works, and all you have to do is go, yep, I want that. It shows up as a square box, but if somebody wants to view it, they can view it for half a P or a, a penny. Yeah, so it's got to be cheaper to for me to access this textbook or access this content uh, without um, going to the trouble of trying to breach the copyright of the publisher. So it's got to be cheaper for me. So a penny is easier for me to pay than to waste my time on. Um, but uh, how that replicates worldwide yet, we don't know. But this is, uh, this is something Elsevier is definitely interested in doing. And, and, of course, you could then embed it in OER and have that rich content in OER. Okay, so this is an example of how Newcastle is embedding Elsevier content in their, um, in their curriculum materials. This isn't, yes, an open education resource, but we've got new projects that's gonna, uh, that will take the, um, take the uh, logins off some of this content so they can, they can unpeel it like an onion. It's a bespoke virtual learning environment that shows um, information in list format. So it's curriculum information, but it's, not all, well, it's organized in a three-dimensional way. So it's not organized like Blackboard would organize it or Moodle would organize it. It's very three-dimensional or even four-dimensional because students can um, put layers of other information, supplementary co topics, community-added topics, your topics. Um, they can look at any... Um, bookmarking that other students have added in. Um, they can view the information in a map format. So this is the same information but presented as a mind map. Um, and here you can add resources, you can add topics, you can view topics um, and import out of other, uh, other systems. And because it's all granular, uh, you can move through the mind map by clicking on different areas and it just gets more and more detailed. And having textbooks in this environment would be a, a really positive thing. One more image from that. So the future of, uh, in terms of where we're going and working with partners uh, and health partners, um, we, we want to do a little bit more work with the consent materials. And this Fritz case study, Assuring Effective Personal Choice in a World of Open Data, Identifying eth Ethically Collected Recordings of People. Well, this is going to be is a, a collection of anecdotes effectively talking about the ethics of how people feel and it's good looking backwards in, into some of the case studies that we've had in the past um, but also somebody came to me yesterday and said oh I couldn't believe it I was doing an interview and someone was describing they as part of their research they get interviews with children they interview children and they're concerned about how that consent is then handled or whether that's adequate for the way in which these um uh, the way in which, the, let's say, for example, the, the research councils are now insisting that, that uh, research data is shared and they're worried that the consent for these recordings is not adequate to allow that sharing of um, certainly interviews with children. And, uh, and that, that is really to look at that kind of thing because what you can also do in the future, and we don't know how this is going to pan out yet, is you can start to put the information together and reverse engineer the origin of something. So even if you've anonymized it, you might be able to then in the future identify from faces. You might be able to identify from voices. You might even be able to identify from walk patterns an individual. So just because we think we, 
doing everything we can at the moment might mean that we haven't thought enough about what might be possible to do in the future to reverse engineer it. Um, I'm grateful to Amber for, uh, and somebody probably reviewed these who's, who's in the room, but um, the Riddler project is working with um, learning maps and also the learning registry and providing data to look at how students use um, things like the mind maps. Um, Superglue, working with colleagues in the US uh, with OER glue, and again, looking at how we um, add value to virtual learning environments by putting layers of content on them. Um, so at a personal level, so that's the sort of national scene. Um, in this, we've got a lot of partners, both locally um, and in health, and also nation nationally and internationally. But just at Newcastle, and this will be a similar picture in, I would have thought, many institutions in the UK, that the, I'm part of the university copyright group. We are considering how we're going to manage the installation of Panopto. We've previously had Echo 360, which was before that re called Recap. Um, so we already have over 5,000 um, events recorded, which are accessed over 4,000 viewings per week, peaking at 16,000 prior to exams. And these are last year's figures, so those numbers will have gone up. Um, so the Recap Copyright Working Group is having to overhaul all policies and processes rela relating to copyright data protection, performance rights, and staff employment. So I've included performance rights, but I haven't put it on the slides. I apologise. Um, and we're bringing in experts to help us to, to try and do that um, and uh, accessing the work that other people have done in, in trying to implement uh, widespread video recording in the institution. So there's a lot of staff development, um, and including, uh, I'm pleased to say, that the risk kit is going to be used by the university as part of the um, staff induction and PGCERT, ClinEd's PGCERT academic practice. And we want to build in long-term benefits for, um, and also the potential to be contributing to OER. Now, in terms of my own attribution and disclaimer for this, uh, for, for this particular um, set of slides, um, I would always include a, a disclaimer, and I recommend that you do as well. Uh, I've included some references and... Uh, the presenter profile that Janet asked me to fill out, so she's not here, but um, anything Janet asked me to do, I always do very quickly because I, I'm frightened of her. Um, but I, do, I am conscious that, you know, what, what Jonathan sort of headlined around, um, you know, building a community of practice, there are over, well, there are a million staff members in the NHS, and we are completely replacing that workforce over a period of time. We do have to keep feeding new people into the system at the same time as ensuring that the people who are there are given as much support as possible. It is a very big job accessing and supporting staff in an NHS context. Um, but I do think that working with the programmes like uh, the OMAX, the uh, PGCERT Clinical Education, is a great way of helping them to start to have the penetration into, into an NHS side. And I have to say, unless anyone wants to disagree with me, it is a, um, it's, it's a completely different world out there. People are so busy and so pressured, and teaching is only a part of what they do. And so we do need to support them in a, in a very comprehensive way, but, but to do it in a time and place that they need, and it's not easy. So um, I hope that hit the mark, Jonathan, and not too wide. <laughs> Thank you. Questions? Yes, we have um, a little bit of time for questions. There's going to be a Q&A session at the end of the morning as well with all the speakers. Um, any, any questions? I'll 
observations. Yes, uh, if you can wait for the microphone. Okay. Um, sorry if I missed this, Megan, but you talked about people paying a penny to access something. How do they pay that? With PayPal or...? Um, yes. Or, okay, the question was, uh, and, and it's probably been picked up on the mic, how, how do people access the um, penny payments? Well, there are a number of ways of doing it. iTunes U does it, apps do it, um, PayPal can do it, uh, and, and PayPal, of course, is just one of the many ways of um, giving someone your credit card and having them take money off it. So um, what we're doing is we're testing different models with the, with the Publish OER project to see which ones might work best and be most acceptable. My guess is it's the app model that will work best, but how you actually build that infrastructure layer into, let's say, for example, showing something on the screen and thinking, oh, yes, one click, a penny, and I'll, I want to look at that. But, of course, you do need star ratings on all of these as well because, you know, if something's got zero star, you're going to think, no, I'm not spending a pe even a penny on it. And whereas if something's got five stars, you, you might be happier. But, you know, this might be an opportunity for some publishers just to print money because as the publishing market changes, as Apple iBooks, etc., moves into publishing, where are the publishers going to go in order to develop their business? Yeah. And I have a theory about this, and I've, I've had a word with my pro vice chancellor, um, who I have to say is deeply horrified at most of the things I've been talking about here. Um, and she, uh, and let's say, for example, Elsevier has a great deal of content. How many recorded lectures would it need next to Gray's Anatomy in order to have um, foundations in Anatomy 101? So they only need a HT partner, and they could become universities. So there's an interesting world that we're in at the moment. And, and uh, you know, whoever does sign up with Elsevier will be probably deeply unpopular, but I think they might make a lot of money out of it. Any other questions? Any questions remotely? Anybody out there following, please tweet or email. Um, this is just sort of a perhaps a hypothetical situation that doesn't really occur, but you're talking about um, uh, performance rights and things like that, which I'm assuming sort of means speakers in particular um, videos. Does that also include people who ask questions as well? I mean, for example, would we, if you're videoing a lecture that has a series of questions at the end, would you have to cut it off before those questions are asked if you don't have the permission of all those students? Yes. Um, so the question about performance rights and whether, let's say, if, for example, a room full of students asking questions, that counts as a performance. Um, in a risk-averse environment, the answer is yes. Um, the way that institutions tend to deal with this, and Simon might say this later, is to put up a notice saying this material is being recorded. If you don't wish to um, be recorded by your tutor, you must notify them. So, um, and actually my copyright group, <laughs> the lady that Chairs it sent round a, a photograph of one of these notices that she took taken when she was down at Southampton the other week. Um, so you know she's and I think there's something just morally wrong with photographing someone else's um, takedown policy that's on the wall. But anyway, um, but it's a good question and actually one that institutions I think have just got to grapple with. And but of course these things go on and on. What you're doing is you're managing your risk downwards. So you're going from that red area down to the green area in the risk table. So you do what you can and try and have a, a sensible approach to it, a pragmatic approach to it, and, and it will get better and better as you get more sophisticated and, and as the students become more sophisticated. Um, I think one of the problems we have in Newcastle and um, I hope that I, this isn't heard by some of my colleagues, is that uh, some of the staff don't want to have their um, materials recorded on Panopto. And um, with those where programs are changing fast, 
and there's lots of new content, they're happy to be recorded. Where ch programs change much more slowly, where the content, you know, if you're teaching history or something, you know, the content doesn't change that much. Um, and so, you know, lecturers are sort of thinking, well, if I record all of it, how long will it be before you don't need me anymore? Uh, I, I'm a little, can I ask one? I, I was a little surprised to see you advocating um, use of copyright alongside Creative Commons. Don't you think that Creative Commons is sufficient on, on its own as a license? Well, it, copyright, you still have to have. Something is still copyright, even if it's Creative Commons. So even if I put, I'm licensing something with Creative Commons, but it's copyright to Newcastle. The rights owner is Newcastle. The yes. rights owner is Newcastle. Yes, but that's that's in the attribute yeah. element anyway. I yeah. mean, you're. Um, it's the only way I can so. get it through my contracts office through the person mm. that uh, looks at. Uh, uh, there has been a lot of discussion at Newcastle. I have to say, uh, I'm very pleased that they have at least put in place a framework where staff may be able to share things with Creative Commons or other licenses, or other open licenses. But that situation didn't exist, I would say, even six months ago. So it's changed quite a lot. And, um, but if, if I can say to him, well, look, it's still copyright Newcastle. We're just putting a license on it that means that other people know the terms under which they can use it. Then um, it's much easier for him to swallow. Okay. Very pragmatic. Um, okay. Thank, thank you very much, uh, Megan. Let, let's uh, move on now. Um, so... A view from a, from a subject area and, and now a, a view from uh, an institution. Um, part of the secret, I suspect, of uh, sustainability is uh, choose a choice of a good acronym because we've had OER, which was my all-time favourite OER acronym, and now we have Unicycle, which runs at an awfully close second. So, you know, just a little hint for you. Pick a really good acronym and you're more likely to sustain the activity. Over to you. Okay, well, good morning, everybody, and thanks for that, Megan. I think it's quite interesting because the contexts here are very different. Um, Megan and her team have been heavily involved in how you overcome the issues of OER related to a you know, very risk-averse subject, and now she's applying that into a very risk-averse university. And our project actually started out being a risk-averse university and looking at how we go on what we call our OER journey. And Unicycle is actually not an acronym, it's just a word. So there, it makes a change. So you haven't got to learn lots of different other words. <clears throat> so maybe I broke the mould there a bit, Jonathan. Oh, There's a lot of acronyms that are kicking around the OER sector. So this is for us, is about making OER sticky. You know the idea that you start out doing something and you can get it to stick? Just a little bit or a big bit. So this is really about our journey of sustaining... OER and making it a bit sticky, if you like. <clears throat> so I'll just take you back almost three years to the beginning of our project. And this was a phase one project. And I think there's obviously inherent sustainability in the fact that we're now into phase three. Not at our institution, but within the sector, you know, the phase three funding call maybe a phase four around the corner, who knows. But the point is that it is already sustaining itself. There is funding that's sustaining that, but the momentum or the movement of OER is being sustained. Our institution was a phase one institutional pilot 
with the remit to really explore how an institution goes around this idea of becoming more OER happy, as it were. So we released um, over 3,500 hours of materials, and we specifically didn't go down the, the OpenCourseWare model. It's a very granular release, and we wanted it to have a wide institutional impact, so we were able to engage actually every faculty within the institution to release some content. We also wanted it to be low-cost and sustainable. See, that's what happens with those... There we go. <clears throat> low-cost and sustainable. So we knew immediately from the outset that we had to design some kind of model where we didn't require any further funding. And it's important to say that we've never received any further funding for open education resource development within our institution since the phase one, so three years ago. So the momentum is being sustained within the institution without any money, with even in the institution, being put aside for open education resource. We also, for a staff level, started to think about how you'd embed it as a reward and recognition process. You would reward and recognise staff for releasing open educational resources. Um, the biggest question and challenge, and Megan touched on this, is around the whole IPR issue in education that academic staff see it as a safety net. It's okay because we're using it for teaching and learning. But in the digital age, unfortunately, you end up being a distributor of content or inadvertently you don't realise you give something to a student and they then make it available and distribute it. So your staff have to be very conscious of that. And Durham was a big part of the process. How do we get our materials released into what you might call a national repository, which is what Joram's intention is and will continue to be, I think. <clears throat> so when I, um, Janet asked me to write what I'm going to talk about, it's actually about this idea, as if you drop a pebble into a p some water, that you get some ripples, you get a ripple effect. And even when you can't visually see those ripples anymore, it still changed the water structure fundamentally at that point. And it's still there, but you just can't see it. So this concept of sustainability for me is this idea that we're putting pebbles into these waters of calm and making a change. And the ripples sometimes are big, small, they last a long time or they last a short time. But that's the, the picture that I like to have when I talk to people about sustaining open education resource. So, just a little bit of context for you. Um, this is uh, what we had at the end of the project uh, on the left here. And the now is what we had roughly about six months ago, so it's still building. And it just gives you an idea of what we've been able to do. The important thing to know is there's a massive slowdown once the funding has ceased, which I think is inevitable, because the funding is the kickstart, the driver for the engagement, and then you're reliant upon people changing culture and practice to carry that forward. <clears throat> so we have increased our resources, and our resources are anything from a five-minute activity up to, you know, 50 hours worth of content and whole modules. So it's a very broad, but we don't have an open courseware model, so we don't have, you know, big modules online or anything like that. We just have them packaged as downloadable resources. Um, a part of the project, we realised that we needed to develop our own 
support mechanisms, not just for open education resources, but for our own repository. So, you know, the project has a, a broader sustainability of making jobs that are temporary as part of a project then more permanent. And so the sustainability is not just around open education, but also the su sustainability of those staff that bring those skills. Increasing our repository use and engaging in discussions with staff within the institution at different levels, and that's something I'll talk about uh, in a minute. And now we're at a point where we're asking every course to look at how they would use open education resources, every undergraduate <laughs> course, as part of their curriculum delivery. And I'll revisit that in a second. We also, as part of the project, set OER as a priority in our assessment, learning and teaching strategy. And that immediately engages a certain level of senior management. And so you're talking about associate deans uh, that are required to engage in ass assessment, learning and teaching priorities. So they have to then work with their staff and vice versa. Um, and workshops. You know, you can never run too many workshops. Sometimes you might only get two people, but if you've changed two people, the likelihood is that they will go and change another two people. So it's just about keeping that momentum and not saying, right, the project's over, we won't run any workshops anymore. It's that sustaining of all of those things that you started and keeping them just ticking over. Keep dropping those pebbles into that water and keep letting the ripples go out. Um, and then this concept of how we reward staff, because... Most universities reward staff through research practice. You know, how many papers have you published? Um, how many book chapters or books have you written? Where actually, a lot of the income of a university is around teacher-focused education. You know, we're teachers. We teach students. And so open education allows us to legitimise the release of teaching materials. And so what we did was, through working with the human resources there was an agreement that staff could put down, this year I will release X amount of open education resource and meet that as a, a performance target or an objective. Um, it says at least 10 people have done that because the PDR process is intrinsically private between the line manager and the person. So that's just for me antidotally going around staff and saying, do you mind, have you done this? And so at least 10 in the, you know, of people that I know have done that. <clears throat> And then this whole thing about IPR, our staff were completely IPR, you know, unaware, if that's a term you can use. And this idea, images, is so easy to get hold of. Yet, unfortunately, the, the copyright ownership around it, is, it was such a clouded uh, understanding from our staff about what they, they could do and they couldn't do. And we've been able to develop the idea that in, when we started out with the project, almost 100% of content had something within it that, you know, oh dear, we need to change that or move that, where we're looking at almost decreasing that need by 50% now. So staff are becoming much more OER aware, or open aware as I call it. The idea that they understand that they can't go to Google and just get an image. They should probably go to Flickr and search for a Creative Commons image. So those are very simple things that have a big impact. Um, and we're getting staff to now talk OER. You know, so when they're talking about resourcing their curriculum, they talk about being open. Oh, I'm going to go to uh, MIT to look for a resource. I'm going to go to OpenLearn to look for a resource. So we're getting staff to think about what open means. And in the last six months, we've had two whole modules 
developed entirely based around content from open education resources. Um, so modules that have been built from resources from different open education repositories embedding themselves directly into the curriculum. <clears throat> this is what we were in 2009. We were heavily producers. We were producers of OER and a small part of our work was about being a consumer of that open education resource. Um, the reason was because the project drove us that way. You know, in essence, the project drove us to be a producer. But we soon realised that actually, selfishly as an institution, we're more likely to benefit from this model, and that is what we are. We are actually more likely to benefit from being a consumer of open education resource than a producer. And there's a number of benefits related to that. One is, we don't have to worry about the copyright issue so much. Because we're only utilising materials that are actually already somebody else has done the work to make sure that they're open. So our staff aren't necessarily worried about publishing their images openly or using images openly. They're going to consume them that have already been identified as being open. It also gives us this idea that, as a consumer, we have a lot of options to, to gather resource together. There's a huge amount of resource. You're talking millions and millions of open education resource items available across the globe that we can literally lay our hands on in minutes or hours. Depends how long the search takes. But it's there. And we can enrich our own students' learning by being consumers of open education resource and pulling those resources together to develop a fantastic learning experience. And so part of our work has been about getting staff to change their attitudes towards content development. And the idea that actually academic staff aren't necessarily very good content producers. They have, quite, you know, they have a good level of knowledge, subject expertise, but they're not always very good at creating content. How many PowerPoint presentations have you seen and you're thinking, that's actually not a very good piece of content? The knowledge within inside it is exceptional, <coughs> but the actual resource content could do with some work. So the idea of being a consumer is that we can use video clips that somebody else has made, we could use interactive um, artefacts that somebody's created. <clears throat> so the consumer model is where we're definitely at. With a little bit of production, we've not stopped, it's just now predominantly about being a consumer. So I just quickly want to talk about OER drivers. <clears throat> the idea is <clears throat> what drives OER and what drives its sustainability within inside an institution. So um, I, really, I knew I should have chosen really bright colours so you could distinguish them. There we go. But the smaller circles here are the, I represent our faculties. So when we had a the project initially, we had six faculties. We've now been reduced to four. So I'm hoping in a few years' time we're not reduced to two. But uh, we have currently four faculties, um, ranging from the top one, which is health and social science, arts, environment and technology on the right, faculty of business and law at the bottom, and Carnegie, which is our sport, education and languages uh, faculty. And each of those faculties have engaged in OER in one way or another. But the point is, is how do we drive them to continue that momentum to do that? And there's a number of drivers that we've identified within Leeds Met that we use to encourage faculties to engage in open education resource use. 
the first one actually is the NSS. <clears throat> Looking at NSS scores, particularly related to learning material scores, so you know the quality of the learning materials, the learning experience, and then working with course teams to work through their resources and think about how they could improve the quality of them by utilising open education resources to underpin what they already do. So the NSS is a big driver for most institutions. Regardless of what people say, whether they think it's a valuable way of measuring institutions, it exists. And institutions hold a lot of value around it. And if you can convince faculties that you can improve course NSS scores by implementing open education, they'll grab it by both hands and have a go. Because they don't know how to solve course quality problems at face-to-face -face level with students. And so they're looking for ways in which they can do that. The other way is the library. <clears throat> the library plays a central role in supporting staff and students and resourcing their curriculum experience. So we have a series of academic librarians that work directly with subject teams and they are fully versed on open education resource repositories. They know specific open education resource repositories for their subject areas. So when staff come to them for support in resourcing their curriculum, they go, yes, go to this repository, this repository or this one because these are all brilliant for your subject. So what we've done is taken the effort away from the staff because there's nothing worse than saying to staff, there's loads of resource out there and they start this whole search experience of, I want to get this resource and then they go, well, I'm not sure where to start. I'll go to Joram, no it's not in there. So I'll go to OpenLearn, no, that's not what I wanted. And then they begin to get a bit disheartened with this process. So what we've done is we used our academic librarians. They become the experts of where the repositories are, and then the staff go to them, as they would do with their book list, or as they would do with any other library resource. So the library plays a very key role in that driver or that engagement. We then have the Centre for Learning and Teaching, which provides the pedagogical underpinning of that. Um, so I've recently, in the last six months, taken a role as head of e-learning in there. So I'm able to take my OER experience and apply it to that team in terms of e-learning development and think about how we use open education practice to um, develop our e-learning strategy. So the Centre for Learning and Teaching provides that pedagogical underpinning that academic staff need to know. You know it's no good telling them something unless you can prove it. So the point is around that, is that the library provides the resource and the Centre for Learning and Teaching provides the pedagogical structure and underpinning to support it. And then the one here which I've left till last, but is actually the most important, is the student. If you can begin to get students to access open education resources and then they talk about it within their groups and with their tutors, there's a natural momentum <clears throat> that takes place with that. And at the moment, we're not particularly strong at that, but there's pockets where that has taken place, where students collectively have found a set of resources to support their own learning. And so what you now want to do is to get the faculties to, to work with the students to do that. So those, that's a model for how we drive OER within our institution. <clears throat> and what we're aiming to do, really, is to develop a model whereby a student experience related to their actual 
resource experience is driven by three major components and they all work together <coughs> to develop this enriched learning experience. We've got open resources here, which we know exist, we've all used them. We've got staff resources, and it's not about replacing our staff resources with the open resources. It's about staff saying, I've got these resources, these are my good ones. I've got some others that I'm not particularly pleased with. How can I replace those with some other types of resources? So some of those might be open, and this one here says institution resources. So that could be ones that are developed centrally within the institution, or it could be ones that have been commercially bought. So we have this triage of... Triage is a nursing term, isn't it? This collection, yeah. <laughs> I thought I'd bring my medical terminology to the forefront. Um, the idea is here is that the student experience is not just focused on our staff resources or on the commercial resources that we might buy in to support their learning, but also bringing those three together. So the staff are making decisions about which resources are best for their students at that point of time. So if we can pull this off, hopefully the student experience will increase, thus influencing the increase of the NSS. There is a link there somewhere, I think. <clears throat> um, so that is the model that we're working at at the moment. Um, that's what we're currently working towards. We're currently going through a process of refocusing all of our undergraduate curriculum. So it's an ideal opportunity for us to get all courses to look at how they resource their curriculum. And in part of our quality assurance document, it asks them how they're resourcing their curriculum. What resources do they need? And they're asked to comment around open resources, um, library-based resources, or their own that they need. So they are really having to think about how they resource their curriculum. So I'm just trying to get things for people to, that they can take away. How do you sustain open education within an, at an institution level? Well, I think you need to build it into your model. If you're not thinking sustainability when you start your project, the likelihood is nobody else is. And so what will happen is your project will finish and that's it, it drops off the end of the, the projects list. So if you can build it into your model, we did that by making sure that it actually aligned itself to institutional strategy and also engaged the key stakeholders within the institution. And that's about getting your multi-level buy-in. So you're trying to get buy-in from space staff that work face-to-face -face with students and senior management. So eventually they all meet in the middle and they go, oh yeah, we're all working towards OER, that's quite good. Um, demonstrating benefit, obviously, and just keep harping on about it. You know, just don't give up. Every meeting, go, well, you could actually benefit by using open education here. Um, and I, I, people must be fed up in my institution and me talking about it, but it keeps that momentum. It's me, I keep dropping those pebbles into that pond and watching the ripples, and then sometimes they miss, sometimes they hit. And then getting other people to own that experience so that they get a sense of, yeah, actually, I quite like OER as well. Can you come and do a talk to my staff about OER because I need you to enthuse them or I need you to talk about it. Share, share, share. You know, whatever you're doing, you've got to share with people, whether that's internally or externally. And that helps build momentum. And the other one is what I call walk the walk. So if I didn't practice open education myself, it would be very difficult for me to talk about it with any 
conviction. So the idea is that if I'm expecting other people to resource their curriculum openly, I should do that myself. So when I was a course leader up till about <clears throat> four or five months ago, I tr- had this conscious decision that 50% of my, mo- of my module would be resourced openly. So I made a conscious decision to look at my modules and resource the content, at least 50% of it should be open. So that I had half which was my own and half which was openly resourced. Um, so you could do things like that. It's not that difficult to do. It's just setting that challenge for yourself. And then, oh, this one is just keep throwing those stones in and watch the ripples and then see if anybody picks them up and then they might start throwing stones in as well. And before you know, you've got bigger waves and all sorts of things. So I'll just finish up before we have some questions. Is this, I've used this before, but I've now expanded on it. This is my evolution model of education. And this, the idea of this is that it's trying to get your institution to think about where you are. Now, the Open University is here, jetpack ready, they're off. But don't forget, they were born open. They had an advantage. It's like a baby coming out and being able to walk already. You know, that's the Open University. They were born ready to go. It's, it's inbuilt and inbred into their cultural heritage. So we'll discount them for now, because it's not fair. The Open University were born open. The rest of us have to learn to be open. We've had to learn how to open ourselves up to become, um, <clears throat> to think more openly. So not only have we changed, but our brand has changed as well. You see? So, slight, so over the last three years, our brand has slightly changed. So when we started our project, we were here. We were the Neanderthal um, OER you, you know, group. We didn't really know much about it. There were pockets of experience that people had. Um, and then slowly we went through this development cycle that the end of the project took us about there, and then about 2011 we're there. And now what we're beginning to do is be- begin to build the momentum. So we're here now, but by the end of you know, 2013, we should be there. We should be thinking differently about open education and how we apply ourselves in a, in a much more competitive market and how we use open education resources to actually improve the likelihood that students will choose us as an institution. Because what they'll see is a great learning experience. Because they will acknowledge that by combining different types of resource... It's the learning design and the learning experience that counts more than the content. Because the content and the knowledge is already free. Somebody could learn about a subject without coming to university if they have the capability to bring that knowledge together into a structured form and then to measure that at the end in some formal capacity. What we're doing as universities is designing those learning experiences using all of this content and all of this resource. So we're getting rid of the things that don't really matter, giving a really strong subject-based experience, measuring it, exploring it, by using lots of different types of content. So I'm trying to get our staff to think of themselves as learning designers, designers of learning experiences, and not this cottage industry of content creators. I'm sat in my office making another PowerPoint presentation. No, you don't need to. 
sit in your office or go and talk to somebody and find a resource that's better than your PowerPoint presentation. And then see what your students think about that. So think about where your institution is now and how you might help your institution get to put on the uh, Open University jetpack if they'll let somebody borrow it. <laughs> okay? Thanks, Tom. Thank you very much. Uh, not sure it's quite true what you say about the Open University, actually, because uh, there are aspects of Open that we have yet to learn. Only 10% of our modules get put out as OER, for example, not 100%. Um, questions? Thank you. Um, well, I'm very excited to hear that the library is a driver in this because, um, I mean, my sense, uh, you know, being based in a library but being more interested in open educational resources is that the library has a crucial role to play. And that doesn't seem to be a common sense understanding. Um, and I suppose I'm, I'm just very pleased to, <laughs> to have a, a confirmation that that has been the case. And... I mean, I suppose a practical question is, I mean, would it be possible to come and talk to you plus the library staff uh, in order to get a better understanding of how you implemented or how you um, grasped and made it an integral part of, of, of the OER uh, in your institution? Yeah, of course. Well, I can give you some clues of how, uh, how we do that now. Uh, <clears throat> one of the things is that historically the ownership of the repository was with the library, so... You know, the repository initially was set up, the library owned the repository. And as part of our project, we didn't want to build another repository that was an open one, so we had to involve the library in that process. So well, we had a repository that was fairly closed in relation to it held our, most of our ref content and you know, our research, which is actually we're releasing more openly now. But what we did as part of the project was work with them and said, well, actually, you've already got a repository. Um, it's already been funded, so we don't need to pay any money for anything, do we? And they said no, which was good. And what we were then able to do was work with them to develop a multi-developed uh, multi repository that hosts both our formal closed research content, some of our open research now, and our open education resources. So technically we involved them right from the beginning. And once you do that, the conversations within the library start to pick up automatically because they want to see their repository used they want to see more staff accessing it and so it's just that matter of dropping the stone in and then the ripples come out and people start picking it up but the academic librarians for us are key for this because what they do is they take ownership and responsibility for the knowledge of which repositories are most appropriate for um, the, the staff give you a comment. I mean, I think at the moment our repository is fairly closed, so I think the first argument would be um, getting an open culture and then making it multimedia, because it's mm -hmm. very, it's just text-based. Yeah. So, but I think uh, it is very encouraging to, to hear what you say. <laughs> uh, I might just mention that we, we did a survey of librarians in, in school looking at their understanding of and approaches to, to where we are. Um, and the finding was rather as you had suspected, namely not very much uh, knowledge and, and, and only limited involvement in most cases. But I think it's a really good point that you started uh, straight away in the library. Now we have a remote question. 
Yes, a question from Kerry Pinney. She asks, how difficult was it to persuade faculty heads to get involved in the project and add OER to alt policies? <clears throat> well, it actually probably worked the other way round. We didn't need to get the faculty staff. What, what we did as part of the project, and this was part of the strategy, is if befriend important people, if you like. So, you know, befriend, at that time, the Pro Vice-Chancellor for Assessment, Learning and Teaching and just keep talking about OER and the benefits. And we really should be, you know, setting some policy here because it's, you know, it's a big thing. We could probably, you know, get a lot of exposure from it, those sorts of conversations. And before you know it, they've gone, well, why don't you write a statement of intent that what we should be doing in 2009-10? And so you write something that says... Um, Every faculty is required to evidence at least X amount of hours release of open education resource. And once that's in at a strategic level, the faculties are required to implement it or to report back why they weren't able to. And I think it's, the best thing to do is to try and... It's that multi-level approach. Is You've got to have something big to take it forward. I, don't, I think it's much harder to embed open education into a an institution where you haven't got some senior management involvement. Um, what you end up with is small pockets of communities that, that they're doing that anyway. Um, so to get the faculty heads involved, they need to see a requirement. So faculty heads have to report to the institution about how they've hit certain targets or objectives, and that's the best way, in my experience, to, to get that sort of level of involvement. Um, I've got myself stuck in a sort of a feedback loop of confusion about OER, share-alike type licenses and non-commerciality of yeah. use. Now, am I right in thinking that almost all OER content is given under the, the non-commercial share-alike type of license? Is, it de I've, I've it depends. On so, <laughs> well, we'll come on to that. It's, it's very difficult to say which is the most common, um, so, but carry on. So, so when... When an institution is selecting its yes. teaching and learning materials, putting together its learning materials for its courses, which are yeah. paid for, yeah. and the OU being the, the, un, the university being a commercial entity, people are paying for things. Yeah. At what point does the use of teaching materials that are under a license for a non-commercial use? <coughs> when do you break that by using OER, or do you, are you when you're doing? Your, or when anyone's putting yeah. together their stuff for their teaching materials, do you only select the ones that allow commerciality, uh, commercial use of those things? Because surely that is part of your offer. Obviously, you've got the teacher, you've got the yeah. assessment, <clears throat> but your learning materials are part of that. And because I'm, I'm from the OU, I'm very conscious of the fact that if we write stuff, yeah. our materials are a huge part of the offer. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're borderline breaking your Creative Commons licence, aren't you, if you're, sell you're effectively selling materials to I students? Think it's, it's, um, I think it will become much. That issue will become much more important as we as we progress down this idea of opening up higher education to private providers. Maybe at the moment, um, most institutions are charitable status, so they don't make any commercial profit. They're publicly funded. Yeah. So, in that respect, there's no commercial gain. There's no commercial gain from that because it's a publicly funded institution, the same as you are, yeah. largely, and the point is that we're all publicly funded, so the money's come from the same pot. Yeah. Um, as we develop models of you know, commercial delivery, that may very well change. I think the idea, you know, in reality, is that as we move down the road, most people, if they want to release open, will 
remove the non-commercial. And in, what we've found is that actually we're only using small chunks. Ours is a very granular experience. So we're not taking the whole of your, you know, an OU module, popping it into our course and saying, brilliant, thank you very much. What we're doing is actually taking little bits that we think add value to our student experience and use it to support what our staff are doing. And so it would be very difficult to measure the commercial gain from that because the content is free. The knowledge is free. In fact, it's the way you bring it all together is what you pay for. And so the students pay for a learning experience that includes my content, some open content, maybe some commercial content that we've paid for. Absolutely. So, so um, maybe, Jonathan, you can... With, with the broad sort of global perspective on it, is that something that's been identified as a tension? Because HE systems vary wildly throughout the world. Some are, you know, more or less pure commercial entities, mm -hmm. um, and all of them are increasingly becoming commercial entities, as in mm -hmm. private, effectively private sector organisations. Um, is that has that been identified as a problem? So as we move this way, we're going to have the potential, let's say, for an, an organisation to take the entirety of, um, let's a, a repository, let's say, Open Learn. Yeah and effectively sell it to students. I'll just say before, I don't think any, stu any institution that's released anything openly has lost out by it. That would be my first thing. I don't think any institution that's released something openly, whether they've got non-commercial on it or not, has lost out. So they've gained something anyway. Yeah. It's whether they wanted to chase the fact that somebody else might have commercially gained something. Mm. Yes, I know this is discussed, you know, by Creative Commons, and, and it's part of, one, you know, it's, they review their licences to try and, you know, sharpen up things like that. But mm. um, just a brief comment on that. I mean, it's interesting. I, th I think it's really important that institutions put themselves in a position where their practice is such that um, they could go open at any point um, and it is important because even if they're not they don't not putting open licenses on material now students are still downloading it exactly as Simon has described affording it to wherever and so even if it's not and it's actually less protected that, that way than it would be if it had an open license on it so because at least with an open license people need you know they understand that they should be attributing it if it doesn't have an open license on it they'll just do it without attributing it so um, you know we've argued strongly that, that you know putting open licenses on is good um, I don't think Newcastle is going to go open but at least it would be in a position where it could just go through later and stamp everything with open licenses if it wants to retrospectively now that actually puts you in a very interesting position about you know an institution that, that could have thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of content that could be made available at the drop of a hat that would be really interesting uh, well Gabby Gabby's next <laughs> sorry then, then Sarah and then. Um, I like your your image of the evolution of education in terms of OERs. And I think there's an extra step that uh, could be added, and I'm not really sure where that would be in another galaxy or something. But it's the, it's the model of what the OER university is doing, and that is um, completely disaggregating content from teaching, from assessment and accreditation. So ultimately, if they reach their goal, if they're successful in achieving this on the massive scale they want to do it on, um, we will, anybody around the world will be able to get a higher education credential, whether a certificate, a diploma, or a degree, entirely based on studying OERs from a range of sources around the world. 
and then applying to different institutions who offer assessment and accreditation against specified OERs to get credits for those specified OERs, combining all those credits and then going to one of the institutions that says they will recognize all those credits and saying, I'm ready for you to give me my degree now. So ultimately... um, the institutions that are producing OERs could be victims of their own success if they really, really do it well. And then, you know, a whole new model, I think, mm. will be needed, a whole new business model. But I'm just wondering whether that's part of where Leeds Met sees OERs going. Um, I don't think so, because I think there's a number of challenges <coughs> involved in that model. One is this idea of validating a programme. You know, to get consensus on a wide scale like that, Uh, I know the Australian model has connected three or four institutions together that have a vague agreement that they will do this. But at the moment, there's no validated program that you know that they all got to agree this program. They've got to agree what is this course, what is the validation process, and all of those stages. It's hard enough to get a validation of a program within an institution for everyone to agree. Getting a validation, you know, across faculties, you know is difficult, yeah. but to get institutions to agree the same programme and then to yeah. have the same validated award at the end is a big challenge. Yeah, but as long as the institution still wants to validate the programme, then the disaggregation hasn't happened. It's a point where the institu- institution says, we don't care what materials our students use to prepare themselves for the assessment. We only want to see them when they come to us for assessment. It's like you go for your driving test. Mm. They don't ask... I'd- you know, were you taught by an AA qualified instructor? They just test you. <laughs> the, the challenge there is QAA, quality. It's, the problem is there is that our institution is going to be happy that the quality yeah. is the same at every institution in order to validate that award. So is what I'm, we're doing at Leeds Met the yeah. same quality as what somebody else is doing in Australia or in another country? So that is the issue, is how they're going to validate the award and ensure the quality so that the degree is degree worthy in essence which is the strength of what we do in the UK is give validity to that degree Mm. by validating the program Mm. designing it effectively and somebody saying yes that is of that level and I think that's the challenge that they're going to have with that model yeah thanks okay so we've had a a discipline perspective we've had a subject Uh, Sorry, uh, we've had an institutional perspective. Uh, Now we're going to look at it from a different point of view, um, and that's a perspective from the Strategic Content Alliance's uh, point of view. And Sarah Farmy, who's uh, with JISC, is going to share her thoughts on that with us. So, over to you, Sarah. Thank you very much. Um, I think I'm going to be replicating quite a lot of what Simon has just said. So I hope it's not too boring um, and uh, that I'm not repeating myself at any stages. But yes, just to tell you a little bit about the Strategic Content Alliance, what we do and why we do it. Um, Oh, am I plugged in? Uh, I'll just just do that. Okay. All right, so... um, The Strategic Content Alliance basically is uh, one of the programmes that runs out of JISC. So I'm quite sure most of you will probably know Amber 
and David Kernahan. Well, we're kind of a sister programme within the innovation team at JISC. Um, and we have a, a slightly different perspective. It's, it's virtually the same once you start really digging into it. But we work out of the content team, which is more interested in, well, it was more interested in the digitisation of resources uh, to start with. Then we started moving into strategy and how we think about digitising resources, making them available, making sure that the majority of users have access, etc., which is where the SCA sits. We're interested particularly in breaking down some of those barriers to content. Um, by content, I'm really talking about digitised primary resources, um, you know, if there's manuscripts, images, film, it, it's that raw content before it goes to the OER team who cook it into nice <laughs> uh, learning and teaching resources. So I suppose I'm coming from a slightly different perspective, but essentially we're all speaking the same language. So, what are we interested in? Well, breaking down these barriers is all about creating an accessible collection for the UK. Um, it's about extolling the value of content and including open educational resources to do some of these, these points, inspiring scholarship, bestowing economic benefits, uh, connecting with people and communities, creating this idea of a digital Britain. Oh, no, wrong one. <laughs> so within that, if we think about that idea of digital Britain, what that means, uh, it's not just about broadband. It's about the content that people have access to. It's not just about education in a formal sense. It's about informal education. All of these things I'm, I'm sure you're well aware of. So the things that we do is to talk to policymakers on certain points, IP being one of them, one of the key ones. Um, we also are talking to funders around things such as sustainability um, and really making sure that there's a cohesive view of what we're trying to achieve. You know, there are different views within just the UK. If you think about that globally, it becomes quite a difficult terrain to start navigating. We're also interested in... Uh, Retooling, reskilling people at the coalface, you know, the people who are actually doing these projects uh, and providing, you know, expertise, school uh, research to be able to, to really help them in the work that they're doing. Now, oh dear, there we go. Oh, with Peter. <laughs> So a word from our sponsors. Um, <laughs> we can't do this alone. Um, as I said, you know, on that policy-making level, it's actually quite important that JISC is working with content producers, content funders across the piece to make sure that we're all singing from the same hymn book um, in terms of what we're funding and what we're trying to do. So within that, we have Heritage Lottery Fund, Arts Council, uh, Welcome Library... BBC and British Library, who somehow got left off that slide. And our work is kind of divided into a number of components, so, and, uh, which all intersect at various different points. So let's say I take IPR. You've probably all heard of the Hargreaves review that's happening at the minute. Um, what we're trying to do is to make sure that 
um, those within education and similar voices in cultural heritage, etc., are saying, yes, won't it be great to have some kind of solution to orphan works? Won't it be fantastic to have, um, you know, educational access um, and exceptions to, uh, to, to content so that we're able to, to access it more easily? So IP is one of our, our big bugbears, uh, and all of the conversations around Creative Commons I'll come on to in a second, because that links very closely. Um, sustainability, that is a key part of our work. I'm going to go through some of the research that we've done. Um, it is from a content perspective, but most of these issues, as Simon has demonstrated in his presentation, <laughs> cross over so easily, so I'll, I'll, I'll let you know about that. Audience, uh, understanding the content itself, make, you know, really um, tailoring content for the user as opposed to having a, a more top-down institutional approach is something that we're really interested in encouraging. Um, I mean, from a, a funder's perspective, you know, it's doing the two things, making sure that there is that strategic view of, which, of the content that we're producing and how it's being produced, but also encouraging bottom-up approaches to how institutions are dealing with some of these issues. Standards and interoperability. JISC is awash with standards and interoperability, so very often we nick stuff from the various JISC departments who probably know a bit more about it than we do. Um, and advice and guidance. We're not, uh, there's, it's a team of two, so it's not a case of getting onto the phone and, and asking us stuff, but we provide tools, which I'll go through in a second. All right, so sustainability, what's the problem? Um, the main problem is that, I think, it, I think it was Simon who was saying that the majority of digital projects that are producing content, be they uh, digitisation projects or OERs, um, do come back to the funder. Um, and, and, and ask for um, sustainability funding. Obviously not in your case, Simon, but, but it, does, it does happen a lot. Um, and this is something that we're trying to avoid as much as possible. Again, this is something that you alluded to. Um, once the term of the grant is over, once the project team have pretty much gone their separate ways, the content, the OER, is stagnant. It sits there... I hate to say it, but there, a few years ago there was a big programme called the uh, New Opportunities Fund, NOF Digi Projects. Huge amount of money went into the digitisation. If you look back on some of those projects, they look so old-fashioned, basically because they haven't had any love or care or editorial work done on them for quite a few years. I do have colleagues that disagree with me on that, but I think if you look at the majority, they're fairly poor. Um, the silo effect of having good content hosted on a variety of platforms unmaintained. Now, the OER community are much better um, at the, the repository aspect. It's something that those who are involved in uh, content creation in the sort of more traditional sense need to learn more about. But that's one of the problems that we have. Project leaders relying on the largesse of the host institution. I think this is an issue which we are currently research, uh, researching and I'll go into in more depth but essentially what we found is that with most content projects and I would guess with the majority of OER is if they are sustained 
in a realistic way, if the team still exists, if the uh, editorial work is done, that will be largely based on contributions given by that host institution rather than uh, anything else. And we need to learn a bit more about how that relationship is managed and how much it costs because it's not something that, well, I think will be consistently sustainable in the future, especially with things as they are. Um, and, and the worst case scenario with sustainability is that once the funding goes, the project goes. Um, you know, essentially it, it, it will sit on a server perhaps. Perhaps even that might go if, if the institution really pulls the plug or if it's, you know, not necessarily that successful. Um, just to go back to the OER content debate, um, let's say content is the apples and OER are the pears. We're essentially talking the same language, but um, <laughs> I, I probably come from the, the, the primary resource, the digitisation side of things, whereas the learning and teaching side of things uh, are probably the pairs. Now, what we're, we're aiming to do in, our, in JISC's next funding phases of work is to put the two together. So our digitisation programme and our OER programme have actually just put out a call and have funded some projects where digitisation actually forms part of the OER. And those primary resources are being linked more clearly into the OER rather than um, something that is just institutionally produced. So your fruit salad, if you like. Not always as easy as it sounds, to be honest. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm currently um, managing a project which is all about uh, uh, World War I and we're having some real issues with licensing, so... Okay, now we've done quite a lot of work on sustainability over the years. We've, run quite, uh, we've done quite a lot of workshops. What we've tried to do is to say to people before they came, what are your main issues? What are your problems? Um, and I've largely put these in order of how important they were. Size, links to important, I guess. Um, so the main issue was generating revenue a freemium model whereby most of the content would be free and then you charge for services or you charge for premium content. Oddly, securing support of the host institution, which we've actually noted to be one of the, the key points, was the least most notable point there. Um, understanding our users was right down the list. As I go through this, it, it might start making a bit more sense. And also, this managing costs, understanding where the costs are to your project, not necessarily just in terms of funding or how much your project manager is per day, but how much you're actually worth to the institution. So, okay. I don't know how to get rid of this slideshow. There we go. Oh, dear. Sorry. Uh, okay. um, so we started research on this in 2009 with an organisation called Ithaca SNR and are based in New York. Um, we, we did, I mean even before 2009 actually, we did a 2008 um, Horizon scan 
sustainability hadn't been talked about at all, really, before that point. Uh, and we wanted to see, okay, so what is stopping digital content? What are the issues around digital content? Turned out, really, to be mindsets. The idea that we are very much focused on the project funding, the project, what's the next project? Institutions are, project managers are, funders are. Um, and that was one of the key project, uh, problems that they picked up. But what we didn't have was any clear um, evidence of this, which is why we did the, the case studies. So we did 12 case studies in 2009 um, from a diversity of uh, geography from diversity of countries, um, disciplines, project types, institutional homes. Not all of these were open uh, content projects by any stretch. Some of them were subscription, they charged for various parts or for the whole thing. So I'm, I'm not going to tell you that this is uh, purely uh, an open access uh, point. So what we tried to think about in those first case studies and then when we revisited them in 2011 were, were what were the successful project leaders doing and which of these projects would be still successful after three years and an economic downturn, which actually happened right in the middle, quite luckily for us. Or unluckily for them. <laughs> anyway, that's not a great way of putting it. Um, but really, we wanted to see which ones would survive. And they were so wonderful in that they actually agreed to let us go back to them and say, OK, which ones were any good. So in 2009, what we noticed, um, <clears throat> staff expertise that were needed when the project was set up were not the same skills as what needed to, uh, were needed to sustain it. So instead of, um, I don't know, uh, a learning and teaching expert, although they would be certainly, definitely part of that, that project and, and the initial part, what we found was that if there was a more entrepreneurial view on how to maintain or sustain funding, uh, then, then that would be useful. In many of the projects, audiences weren't taken into account. Um, I think we've become a lot wiser on that. You know, um, There isn't a single project that gets funded these days without a, a pretty um, in-depth stakeholder analysis. But occasionally, projects slip through the net. Certainly at this point, they weren't thinking about audience. They were thinking about, this is a wonderful resource. We have to digitize. We have to get it online. We have to make, you know, without really thinking, actually, this is quite niche. <laughs> it's very important to you. But, you know, um, Greek manuscripts of whatever BC. I hope I'm not insulting anyone here. Um, won't necessarily have broad uh, uh, appeal. Um, hidden operating costs were also very uh, important. As I said, the host institution element did come up um, many times. Reliance on one single revenue source, well, you could substitute revenue for, for funding here um, that, that put projects at risk. Um, and also the issue of me measuring impact. Uh, we've all become, I think, again, a lot wiser on that and have, you know, thought of many ways around it. So of that, that 2009 studies, we picked out five key things that the most sustainable projects were doing. Empowering leadership to define mission, and within that, thinking about staff skills and resources, about how 
they will actually continue to support that project and do they have um, some of the skills to be able to do that. Creating a strong value proposition for your resource. Uh, creatively managing costs. Um, again, that's with the host institution, but thinking about it a bit more widely. Where can you outsource um, and, and, and issues like that? Cultivating diverse sources of revenue. Well, this um, almost takes the tack that you do want to be commercial. It's not always the way, you know. It, it could be that, as I said, the freemium model, you would only think about this point on the services that you did want to charge for, um, which does take us a little bit away from, from the open access um, tradition. However, two of the projects, and actually three of the projects that we looked at, did have an open access publishing model. So they were also creating revenue around it. Um, and establishing realistic goals and a system of accountability. So two years on, one economic crisis later, um, what, which, which, which of these points were actually borne out in the end? Well, revenue. Um, it was the reliability of sources rather than diversity that seemed to, to hold out. Um, those projects that, that nailed their colours to the masts of um, institutions or... Uh, funding sources that were seen to be something they could rely on instead of one-offs here and there were, were far and away the most successful. Um, reliance on host institutions was more so than in the past, which is why we're taking, undertaking some work around this. Um, and most of the projects were struggling to, to really break even at that point in that the host institution wasn't always very happy about taking them on and, and keeping them going. Um, need to know audience, uh, again, it's very important. Um, and to, that audience, if they were looking to create revenue, was also driving some of the models that they were using. So tailoring um, a charging system around uh, who was actually using it. I should say at this point, um, coming back to the question of how institutions are thinking about commercialisation of resources, when we've, when we've ran similar workshops to this, 2009, nobody said that it would be acceptable to use, uh, to get, gain revenue for resources that have been created using public money. When we ran it again in 2011, Virtually the whole room said, yes, we think that's okay. So attitudes have changed. Uh, we're not talking about profit-making here. We're talking about sustaining the resource that you've created. Um, it's not like we're expecting you know, Donald Trump to walk through the door and, and go, yes. Um, but I do think that uh, attitudes around uh, charging for resources have changed at an institutional level um, and also at a project management level. Um, a lot of our digitisation projects from the last round are thinking about business models such as sponsorship, um, author contribution pays, all of those open access business models or freemium business models um, with, with, with almost, a, a, you know, this is how it needs to be done now. So, I mean, I, as I say, I don't sit in the OER community and I'm, I'm not sure how 
popular or unpopular this view is going to be. But uh, that's certainly what, what we've seen exhibited over, over time. As I say, back to this. Cost management was another point uh, that we noted. Um, using strategic partnership to innovate was, was very useful. Um, constantly salami slicing wasn't. It was thinking about bringing in different organisations, different partners that can actually contribute either um, human resource not, or you know, a, a variety of non-financial resources which would actually go some way to reduce your overheads. Okay, so I'm going to go through some of these points that I think would be most useful. Um, so creating a, a strong value proposition, which sorry, <laughs> I'm sure Simon has probably gone through. But understanding the value of what you've got and the audiences that may wish to use it. How are they using it? What are they using it? You know, can we, can we change um, perspective on that if we need to? Different audiences will see different value in what you're doing. Um, and I think, you know, the, the conversation lady was saying before about universities who were this new idea of the OER university, I think, is, is amazing. And this could be um, bearing out this point a little bit more. And are we shooting ourselves in the foot? But it was a it was a really interesting point. Um, then... There may be that some content is more valuable because it's more unique. Um, so let's say um, you do have these wonderful Greek manuscripts. It may be that actually it's ridiculously valuable to the people that are actually using it. Therefore, you will have more um, loyalty almost from those users who are committed um, than something that has uh, the, the broad brush approach audience. Um, now, there, I, there are so many examples of uh, crowdsourcing uh, projects which have really gone on to, to fantastic things. This is the one that we looked at. Um, it's called eBird um, and it was a group of ornithologists that started off as a very, it was a very academic project. Uh, you know, they expected university professors to be uploading their um, sightings of various birds they then put it out to the public and found that twitchers I think they're called yes, they are. <laughs> 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 twitchers are very very um, zealous about their subject and you know was really really happy to support it and, and it was that momentum that's kept this going um, they found sponsorship deals. They thought of all sorts of interesting ways to really go through this, this model. There was a huge increase in popularity. That has tailed off a little bit. Um, but essentially, out of all of the crowdsourcing uh, projects that, well, certainly that I know about, this seems to be the one who have really experimented with what they do based on that deep level of interest from their, their users. So how well do you know your audience? Well, who are they? Why are they using your site? Uh, what other similar sites might they be using? Are questions that you should be answering. Um, 
Yeah, so project leaders who had actually made an effort to think about audiences very often were much more able to be um, flexible about how they were going to sustain it as well. Um, uh, you know, for, for many academic resources, the idea of sponsorship is unthinkable. <laughs> Having sort of a big commercial banner over it is, is not necessarily something that will sell your resources to the people who are going to use it. Um, the project manager would probably know about that anyway, but if they canvassed their potential audience, I think that would be, um, that's one of the points to think about. Identifying sources of support. Um, so this is really thinking about, once you know who's using it, how can you actually enlist support? Not necessarily just funders, but your audience as well. So um, among our sample, uh, there was less experimentation in 2011, which is a shame because um, whilst you do need that reliability, you have to be aware that, that taking risks is, is useful and gives you new avenues really to think about it. Uh, subscription models were relatively stable, but newcomers were harder to find. Um, that's a Willingness to try the freemium model, um, that's something that we've, I've, I've spoken about. And examples of using partnerships to great uh, effect was useful. Um, so one of these, uh, one of the case studies is the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Um, this is quite an interesting model to start with. It was an open access resource that had an endowment um, that they took from every year. The endowment, I think, was, um, was initially given by the Funding Foundation and they used it in a clever way, held it in a bank account. I'm not sure if we can even do that in this country. This is an American resource. Um, but took the interest and, and lived off that, essentially. Um, however, with the stock market crisis, the endowment model didn't really work as their you know, income became less and less, the interest was less and less. And they launched uh, individual membership for PDF downloads. Um, it was always an open access resource. So were they going against their traditional core um, users? We have yet to see. Uh, they only did this in 2000 and, uh, late 2011. So we won't know whether they have, in fact, alienated those people. However... When this case study was looked at, most of those, though, that, that audience still wanted to keep that, that resource going and were happy to pay for the downloads. There was still, um, you know, net access, but it, it was just for those PDF downloads. So it's quite an interesting case study to, to sort of help think about how we consider audience and all of this and, and how we get that support. Um, <clears throat> And, you know, the, the, the sustainable model does have this variety of models. Um, it's not just one that, that, that will out. Um, I've already made the point about diversity and reliability, but, you know. Um, and, obviously, public-private partnerships. This is another area where um, I think JISC is going to have to do a lot more work, um, the, the case study that we looked at within the Ithaca research was the National Archives. 
a very big organisation that was thinking about how it bundles content uh, like a vendor-client relationship. You, it, um, the client digitises under a certain licence, TNA gets what it wants, the client gets what it wants. Unfortunately, um, we need to think a lot more about how that model actually, actually works. You have very long licences uh, with some of these um, resources, which means that the publisher, who's come along to, to help you, um, is getting a lot more out of that and is exploiting it more than you are able to do. There's also the issue of exclusive and non-exclusive licensing. Um, and I think certainly with Creative Commons, that idea of exclusive and non-exclusive, Creative Commons is, is a non-exclusive license. You can do what you want with it. You can also charge. It would be sometimes a bit tricky because why on earth would anyone pay for something that they could get openly? But the option is there and, and it's, it's something to think about. Okay, uh, won't be much longer. Um, yes, the, the partnership model was, was probably the most um, useful in all of this. It was really about... Who brings what to the party and how much do they contribute? <laughs> so that could be uh, people, money, uh, where to host the, the resource, where to house the resource, where, literally where people would sit. Um, and, you know, I, I think innovating around this is, is really a way of, of keeping it fresh and keeping it, um, keeping it going. One thing to think about, though, is the idea of benefit and constraint. Um, certainly working with commercial partners, as I've said, can have its issues. Also, something that did come up was that many of these partnerships, with the way that funding is at the minute, uh, one partner would unfortunately leave for whatever reason, uh, simply didn't exist anymore. Uh, and you would have to plug that gap somehow um, if you wanted to keep going. So partnerships can be tricky, um, and it's how you manage it. But essentially, you do have a bit of a backup at least, um, and, and a, a partner in crime almost. Okay, so aligning with the host institution, um, this has played a bigger role than anything. The projects that were continuing had aligned with their organisation's um, uh, value system and what they were hoping to achieve. And, and that came across loud and clear in, um, in Simon's presentation. They were there when the grant stopped. They were interested in the business plan, um, but also held them to account when that business plan didn't happen. Um, and, you know, with, with the funding issue, that's always going to be an issue. So, Southampton Library Digitisation Unit was, was one of the case studies. Now, this was created in, I think it was 2008, called BopCris. You might have heard of it. Um, and it was really a digitisation service that was open to external clients. So, any university that thought, oh, well, we don't want to buy a scanner or goodness knows what, they would go to uh, Southampton and they would do the hard work for them, if you like. Um, unfortunately, University of Southampton said, well, you're not bringing in, bringing in 
enough clients, you're not bringing enough money. Um, actually, we've got loads that we need to do within our university. So they had to shift their business model, really, to and rededicate it to their own university. I'd, I'm not quite sure how the university sold it to them, whether this was a fait accompli, and that's simply how it will now happen, or whether, you know, it was a, it, it was a decision taken mutually. But... Um, essentially that shift did have to happen in order for that service to continue and, and that's something that's, that's facing all of us. Alright, so in terms of that aligning, uh, Ithaca and SNR are doing more work around this. Um, because we feel that it's such an untapped area, um, A, how do you, selling the project to senior management, which I think was a, a question before, um, is a very difficult task. You need to know a lot more these days um, to sell it than you would have done uh, previously. How can we think more clearly about what um, pro-vice-chancellors want or even faculty staff? It needs to be um, aligned a lot more. So we're researching techniques and strategies being deployed um, and how we can support institutions and projects in terms of, of aligning the two, the two areas. Okay, so SCA does produce uh, a lot of tools, advice, guidance, etc. But I just want to take you through to a particular one. I'll be quick here. Sorry it's so small. Um, this is on the uh, Strategic Content Alliance blog. So if you want to have a look at it, it's, it, it's there. Um, but this is a, a really great framework for how you think about sustainability. Um, down the bottom, or down this way, it's, it's uh, setting goals, identifying activities, determining costs, building uh, a revenue plan, if that's something that you want to do. Um, and then here you have uh, the components of sustainability. So technical requirements, content, access, uh, audience and impact and staffing. Um, so if you work through each of these steps, it does actually help to give um, a much clearer view of, of where you need to go and how you're going to do it. If you showed this to anyone in business, they'd probably laugh you out the room and go, don't you know that? But actually, no, we didn't come into this profession to do any of that. So a lot of the time, um, the skills, whilst there are many skills, but the skills for this sort of thing aren't always there. Amber did ask me to say that there are some new OER resources, <laughs> if you would like to have a look at them. Um, so there's... Uh, new open educational resources, case studies, and also a really fantastic video um, from Web2Rights that explains some of these IPR things in, in such amazing detail. And it's, it's, a, it's an animation. It's really easy to watch. Um, so I, I, I suggest having a look. If you go to the GISC YouTube channel or the GISC website, you can also get this as well. Um, but I really suggest it for anyone that's interested. Okay. Oh, yeah. So this is this is the URL also for the SCA blog. We are actually migrating at the minute from the most unattractive, unappealing 
web presence I've ever known to something that I hope will be a bit nicer. Um, so you might catch us in the state of flux, but do have a look at it. Um, it, it has got the information on there. It's just a bit of a, a, bit of a mess at the minute. Okay, thank you very much. Sarah, lots of food for thought there. Any questions? Hi, thanks for that. I ha actually, an observation. I think you might have hit on something there, this idea of sponsoring the creation of OER. And I wonder if anyone's got any evidence at all that this has ever taken place, that a, you know somebody has commercially made a decision to sponsor the development of an open education resource based on the fact that it might be in the hands of hundreds of thousands of students who are potential customers. And I just wondered whether there's is any evidence to suggest that that model has ever been explored or discussed. I know MIT has a donation model, um, but it would be very interesting to explore that idea of actually the marketization of the creation so that commercial people see value in getting their product in front of people that might use open education resources. Mm. I do have an example of that. Um, it was a podcast that it was part of the last digitization program and the name of the project actually escapes me but it's, I think it was University Podcasts and essentially it was all about uh, teaching history to um, an A-level uh, and, and an undergraduate history syllabus. Now, what they did was approach QCA and say, okay, this is what we're doing for your syllabus. Are you interested? And, and they did actually sponsor some of it. They also did get some commercial partnerships as well. Um, I'll have to try and remember exactly who. Um, but they have, they have been quite successful. But one of the problems that they've encountered is the how much resource it takes to really do that. Your job becomes being an entrepreneur instead of being uh, a, a learning and teaching um, uh, manager or, or, or your, your day job, if you like. So I think they found that hard. But they've brought in a consultancy to do that. How good that's going to be in terms of managing the costs, I don't know. But there, there are projects that are trying it. I'll, I'll send around the link... Um, to you afterwards because they're, they're really good. I don't know if anyone else has any more examples of that. <coughs> Where do you see the role of publishers in the future? Are they our friends? <laughs> oh, my Lord. <laughs> the most horrible question in the whole world. Uh, in, in, in my uh, professional uh, guise, yes, of course. <laughs> and I do see that as being a, a really important relationship. Um, yeah, I do. Um, they're taking an absolute hammering in the US at the minute. Um, and, I mean, Elsevier um, have put resources into uh, an open access model. They argue that they're not seeing the returns um, on that to an extent where they can expand it anymore. So, in some ways, I think it's up to the community to be encouraging the likes of Elsevier to be doing that, rather than creating a, almost a, a standoff between us. Um, but I think, essentially, over time, publishers will, will need to be thinking about diff different business models. I mean, with all of these things, it's not revenue for revenue's sake, 
it's just to sustain something good. Um, and I think if all of us, including publishers, can, can see that, um, then that would be useful. But essentially, wh what business is going to give up their profits? You know, it's, it's quite, quite a difficult path to tread. And I think we need to see it a lot more from their perspective. Um, yeah. I can't resist coming back on that. <laughs> um, you know, as you say, I mean, we're pushing against an open door with publishers at the moment. The trick is going to be whether we can keep up with the development of and implementation of new business models in ways that are in trusted areas. So, for example, for the Publish OER project, the um, area that has been chosen to release content in is veterinary medicine because internationally that is a small enough community. So, for example, I couldn't get them to agree to release the... Um, hold contents all 800 pages of Grey's Anatomy because that's obviously a big earner for them. Um, but we can experiment with all of the veterinary textbooks. So one of my lads at the moment is pulling them all out of Quark, um, sticking them into learning maps so that you can link to them dynamically out of your VLE. Um, but then we've got to look at how that payback does come back to the publishers. And I agree with you completely because what has happened is publishers have invested a great deal of effort in working with authors in order to produce those materials. Um, but there are other publishing models now, of course. So you, I could pay 99 US dollars and, and publish any old rubbish on the internet and, and uh, then the provider that I'm um, hosted with will just take a percentage of my earnings. Um, so if it's a good book that I've paid $99 for, then um, I'll earn some money and they'll earn some money. But if it's rubbish, it doesn't cost them anything to host mm -hmm. it on their, on their server. But the open textbook initiative and, and the um, work that's being undertaken in the US is definitely going to I think have a, an impact on publishing in terms of texts uh, because it is, you know, it's 80, 80 90, 100 pounds for some te textbooks um, just for first year students and, and across them um, programs like business etc you know students are expected to spend a lot in in 2012 they're not going to want to pay um so That's i think we're pushing against an open door our opportunity to speak with i mean elsevier will speak with anybody and um th i think that it's very important that we make sure that the dialogue is one of trust because otherwise we're going to lose that uh, opportunity to influence um absolutely um Okay, I, I, I suggest we, we move to our next session now. Thank you very much, Sarah. That was really interesting and, and uh, uh, just so much uh, in there.